It's like you don't exist at all. There's just no AJ. He doesn't have a body. He's not feeling anything. He's not thinking anything. It's literally just nothing. Getting discomfortable with sensory deprivation. I recently returned from Bali in Indonesia, where my brother and his family are living for a year. While I was there, I went to a place called the Pyramids of Chi in Ubud. They are two pyramids designed for the purposes of sound healing or sound bathing. It's sort of like a form of meditation. You are surrounded by the sounds of different instruments, usually gongs and didgeridoos and like glass and crystal. But the version that I took part in with my older brother was a more modern version of a sound bath. Inside the silver pyramid at the Pyramids of Chi, there are four specially constructed single waterbeds. They are side by side in a row of two by two. So me and my brother and two strangers lay down in these beds, all of us head to head. And beneath each waterbed, there is a speaker that is connected to a microphone at the other side of the pyramid. Our guide, Laurent, use the microphone to amplify a bunch of sounds that he was making live into the waterbed and into our bodies. So you get in, you lie down, there's a face mask beside you, and he says that if any time you feel sick, <laughs> you can put the face mask on. My brother, who is not used to trying weird hippie shit like I am, was particularly concerned about this. He was like, I'm kind of claustrophobic. If I feel uh, ill, can I get up? Can I leave? Can, can I exit the pyramid? Can I stop? And Laurent assured us that you could do all those things, but no one had ever done that in the two years that he had been putting on these amplified sound baths. Laurent is an experimental musician, and he told us that this all began with him doing some experiments in his basement of putting music into a waterbed. And his friends, who he was using as test subjects, started to report back all kinds of trippy, transcendent-type experiences. Like, they felt like they were going on a journey, and that they, they were on a kind of like a different plane of existence or, or a sense of an out-of-body experience. So he created this entire sound bath experience kind of by trial and error, by chance. So we all lay down and he closed the doors of the pyramid so it was pitch black. And the session began with him just doing some acoustic sounds it sounded like gongs, like fingers spinning around the top of a crystal wine glass, that sort of thing. It was very peaceful and nice, and I was just sort of experiencing a, a kind of relaxed meditative state.
But then... When he switches on the speakers beneath the beds, you suddenly feel the sound vibrations moving through your body in a very unusual, almost all-consuming way. I remember at one point my mouth was just hanging open because it really felt like every cell of my body was vibrating. And he was using the speaker to amplify real sounds that he was creating in the moment. I'm not exactly sure what he was doing, but I think the gong and the didgeridoo and these different sounds were being warped and manipulated and pushed through the speaker. And whenever the sound would stop and there would be this sort of merciful moment of silence, you could still feel every cell in your body kind of tingling. It was never unpleasant, but it definitely felt like you were being gripped in a very kind of intense way, like your whole body and being was being manipulated. And it was fun. Like I was, I was actually had to hold in laughter at certain points, a kind of giddy, excited laughter. And I could only imagine what my face looked like if anybody was able to see it. Maybe Laurent could tell. I was pushing my lips out because it felt like every little bit of my body was vibrating. And I just had to kind of like move them around. You know, like when your leg falls asleep and you feel an urge to kind of like wake it up. Every little bit of my face and my lips needed to kind of be like out stretched and <laughs> and manipulated. It was a really unusual feeling. I experimented with my positioning a bit. For example, if you rotated your head and put your ear directly against the waterbed, the sound in that ear got even more all-consuming. And I kind of actually wished that there was a way that you could get both ears to touch the waterbed at the same time so that you felt completely immersed in the sound. I even considered rolling over so that my face was pushed against the waterbed, but I wasn't sure if that was allowed or what the etiquette was or if it would disturb the other people who were lying extremely close to me. So I didn't have the nerve. Though afterwards, I asked Laurent if that was allowed, and he was like, of course, like you can do whatever you want. I also asked, has anybody ever turned over? And he said, no. And then... About halfway into the hour of the sound bath, he set off a series of LED lights that were hanging above the four of us. And with your eyes closed, it started to create this crazy kind of pattern effect against your eyes. I don't know if you've ever seen those videos where they put a bunch of sand on top of a speaker or even water on top of a speaker and then play different sounds through it. And the sound waves create all these fascinating different patterns in the sand or in the water. You can see it in like the ripple effect. That's what it looked like in my eye. It was like 
a kind of astral projection of light rippling through space, and it really did start to feel like I was traveling somewhere, like I was moving through space. It, it felt kind of like the scene at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey where he's hurtling through some unknown part of space full of psychedelic patterns. Apparently, a lot of people who have done this particular sound bath have equated it to doing ayahuasca. Having done ayahuasca, I can say that for me, it was not the same, but a little bit the same. I wouldn't want to go into that sound bath expecting to have an ayahuasca level experience because that's not really what it is. But it, it is definitely an all-consuming psychedelic type of trip especially when this LED light is flickering, because the different types of flickers create different sensations, and the vibrating noise is sort of just like rippling through your body and rippling through your eyes, and it really just feels like you are traveling or you are being torn into pieces, but, you know, like in a painless way, or you don't exist anymore. It's, it's, it is meditative, but it's much crazier than a normal meditation would ever be. At one point, the light started flickering in such a way that both my brother and I afterwards discussed feeling like we were spinning. It was sort of like you were in a Gravitron. If you've ever been on one of those rides at an amusement park where it starts spinning so fast that you basically get pulled up against the wall away from gravity, that's what it felt like. And, and we weren't actually moving. It was just the light. And the other thing that my brother and I both experienced was that we weren't sure at a certain point if our eyes were open or closed. And I was afraid to kind of try to open them, and I was pretty sure, no, my eyes are closed. But then I was like, maybe they're partially open. I, I really just couldn't tell. And I was sort of in this, this all-consumed state that I wasn't really in a position to try to investigate. It was just like, just lie back and let this happen and we'll investigate later. Finally, the LED light goes off, and there's a sort of cool-down period where Laurent used the didgeridoo to kind of really ground us into the world again. At the very end, it took quite, like, I don't know how long, but it, I just lay there long after the sound had ended and sort of just felt the vibrations slowly ebb out of my body. And then Laurent opened the doors of the pyramid and the sunlight of Bali came streaming in and it was extremely peaceful and extremely relaxing and he encouraged us to go outside 
to be on our own for a while, to walk around the beautiful gardens at the Pyramids of Chi. And I did just that. I walked around barefoot, and it was one of those moments where everything around you feels heightened and feels focused and feels very present. Like, I would look at the grass, and each blade of grass was very distinct and unique and fascinating. And then I would look at a rock wall and the moss and the little insects, and every detail just seemed so heightened and alive and focused. And, I mean, I guess it just it brought me into an extremely present, mindful headspace where everything was beautiful and fascinating And all of my worries or thoughts about the world were completely forgotten. Slowly, I started to acclimatize, and I started talking to my brother again, and started to think, okay, what are we going to do for lunch? And sort of the, it's that moment where you've had a really kind of blissful, peaceful experience, and then. The realities of day-to-day existence, you feel each one returning one by one. You're like, oh, right, responsibility and heading home. And, oh, right, like getting a ride and paying for it with money. You know, like each adult responsibility kind of comes back and is it's not, it's not too depressing, but it's definitely a sense of, oh, right, <laughs> reality. A sound bath of that intensity is certainly not something that I would want to do very often, but it's definitely something I'd love to experiment with again. This particular one was quite expensive. It was like a hundred U.S. dollars, which is really expensive when you're in Bali. So it might not be worth it to everyone, but for me, it was much more interesting than, say, a spa day, and. Probably even more relaxing and fascinating. So it, it seemed worth the price to me. One of the things that the sound bath reminded me of was one of these sensory deprivation float tanks. I've actually floated twice or maybe three times when I was living in Toronto, and if you don't already know, it's basically this chamber that's just about the size of a human but wider, and they fill it half full of salt water, lukewarm salt water that's about the same temperature as your body, and you basically go in, you shower off, and you get inside this tank, and the amount of salt makes your body float. It's completely pitch black, and what's interesting about it is that when your body is the same temperature as the water, and you're floating and not touching anything, it starts to feel like you have no body at all. It starts to feel like you don't exist, and so you're kind of just stuck in in blackness in space with your thoughts. And if you practice meditation and you are Able to kind of clear your thoughts, then for an hour in a float tank, it's like you don't exist at all. There's just no AJ. He doesn't have a body. He's not feeling anything. He's not thinking anything. It's literally just nothing. 
which is kind of nice. It's, it turns out that it's kind of nice to take a vacation from existence. Who knew? There's this story written by J.G. Ballard called Manhole 69. It's about a group of patients who undergo an experimental treatment that stops them from needing to sleep. And in the story, they slowly start to see the room around them as if it is shrinking until they're trapped in their own heads and they basically go mad. At the end of the story, one of the researchers offers a theory about what may have happened, and I quote, Continual consciousness is more than the brain can stand. Any signal repeated often enough eventually loses its meaning. Try saying the word sleep 50 times. After a point, the brain's self-awareness dulls. It's no longer able to grasp who or why it is, and it rides adrift. I think Ballard's point was that the problem with not sleeping is that you're stuck being yourself all the time. That actually being conscious and being a human being is torture if you don't get at least eight hours of a break from it every night, which I think is kind of fascinating and perhaps kind of true. Being in that float tank was refreshing. It gave me a break from worry, from thinking, from analyzing, from living. And it felt quite healthy. There are a few downsides to floating. One of them is that you can't help but wonder who else was in that float tank that day and how clean they were. For example, one time I was floating and I found a clump of hair that definitely was not my own. They apparently take the salt water and cycle it through a UV filter before the next person goes in. But there really is a sense that you are floating in a kind of dubious soup that may contain traces of other people. I figure that if you go to the float place first thing in the morning, you're probably getting the cleanest water. Like, maybe that's a whole new batch of water each day, you would hope. But it is definitely something that crosses your mind as you're in there because for some reason, the salt water feels kind of slimy. It feels like there's a layer of film on your skin, but there isn't actually. It's just that's what really salty water feels like for some reason. So some people I know find float tanks so gross that they just can't relax at all. And other people I know find it so claustrophobic that they just can't stay in there. So, I don't know, floating may not be for everyone, but if you feel like you might benefit from a vacation from yourself, a vacation from existing, then you could try doing a float and you might like it. Another adventure that I got up to recently was eating dinner in complete darkness. I came back to Vancouver for the holidays, and there's a restaurant here called The Dark Table. I was like, eating in the dark, no big deal, that'll be easy. But it's actually much more unnerving than I expected. You show up at The Dark Table, and outside of the restaurant, 
is where you order because you can actually look at the menu. But what we both ordered was a surprise. That way, when you're in the pitch darkness inside the restaurant, you have no idea what you're eating, and it's kind of a fun guessing game. So we ordered, and then our server comes out. His name is Bobby, and he is blind. In fact, all of the staff at the restaurant are visually impaired in one way or another. So they are adept at moving through space without light. Bobby was super friendly and immediately was like, okay, grab my shoulders. And he led us through this pitch black, circuitous restaurant filled with all kinds of drapes, basically, that they're using to block out light from the kitchen and from the area where you pay. And he gets us into the restaurant, seats us, and I am immediately turned off. Normally, when I enter a restaurant, I am judging it based on how it looks. Is it clean? Is it well-decorated? Does it look warm and friendly and inviting? And in this case, it was absolutely pitch black. I could see absolutely nothing. So the only thing I had to base my assessment of the restaurant on was, well, smell and touch and, like, temperature. And all of those things I felt were saying that this was a terrible restaurant. I felt like there was a weird smell in the air. I didn't know what it was. I mean, it was probably just food left over from the last seating. And the atmosphere, I don't know, without lights, I just, everything felt sort of, in my mind, this is what's interesting. In my mind, I was imagining that if you turn the lights on, we were in a kind of really cheap looking, almost like an office space that had been sort of half-acidly turned into a restaurant. And I was imagining, because there is no light, that they had probably furnished it with the cheapest materials that they could find. And I was like, I was touching the table to try to gauge if it was a quality table or a shitty table. And like the glass that my Virgin Caesar came in, I was like, is this a good glass or is this like a cheap glass? And I found it fascinating to be confronted by the judgments that I make when I enter a restaurant subconsciously and see that when I don't have my eyes, I'm trying to judge the restaurant in a completely different way and a completely inaccurate way. I have no idea what a good restaurant is necessarily supposed to smell like or feel like to the touch, but for some reason I immediately felt super uncomfortable and I felt kind of dirty, and, and I felt I had zero trust. I was like, why would this restaurant be any good? Why would I want to eat here? Why would I trust that this is a, a, a decent place? All these things were going through my head, and I just felt really disoriented, and I couldn't believe how difficult it was to feel present and to enjoy myself. I actually think that as humans— we default to the negative. I think it's probably a function of survival. I think evolution has geared us to be extremely skeptical and wary and kind of nervous and to expect the worst when we are in new situations. So in this situation where I am completely out of my element and I can't see and I'm going into something extremely unknown, my instinct was to just get really negative. And it, was, it wasn't even just that I was worried that the restaurant might be dirty. It was a, a deeper judgment than that. It was, it was a, a sense of 
seediness. It, it was it was connected to shame for sure because I've gone into lots of like dive bars and divey restaurants and appreciated them for what they were and had a perfectly good kind of greasy spoon meal. But here there was a fear of just general badness. You know, like that's what's so fascinating about shame. It's a fear of a kind of primal, deep, almost undescribable badness that is just wrong. And you can't even put your finger on exactly what's bad about it. There's no logic to it. It just, it touches into a deep instinctual fear that you need to get away from whatever this thing is that doesn't feel right. I should note that the badness of the restaurant isn't shame. That's just general fear. What was shamey about it was the way that I was blaming myself. I was like, of course, you idiot. You're putting yourself in this crazy situation. Of course, it's going to go badly. Of course, you can't trust this crazy restaurant. It's all my fault. That is a reflection of my own deep inner wrongness and badness and inability to make adult decisions. And there's kind of this imagined audience of all these people just shaking their heads, judging me like, what was he doing going to a crazy restaurant like this? What an idiot. AJ's so kooky. That was the message of shame. It takes a mistake, which is already bad enough, and then makes it feel like you personally are a mistake just for having made that mistake. So you have to deal with the negative repercussions of the mistake and you have to deal with the shame of how bad you feel for having made it. It's a double whammy of fear and shame. I have to admit though, that when my food arrived, my starter and my drink, that really helped to ground me. The act of eating food suddenly started to make sense of this whole experience. And I was delighted to discover that the salad was good. And I started to relax. And I started to feel this deep sense of distrust and unease slowly ebb away. But I was still very much disoriented. It was extremely hard to focus on conversation with my dinner date because I had no visual focus of reference. So everybody around us who was talking was competing for attention, and it was extremely hard to gauge how close or far people were from us. Like, it really felt like the table next to us was just as close to me as my dinner date was, and if you could reach out, you felt like you could maybe touch them, but you couldn't. They were actually surprisingly far away. But without a visual reference, all sounds seem equal. And whoever happens to be saying the most hearable, noticeable, or interesting thing just grabs your attention away, and you immediately lose track of the conversation you were just having. I actually needed to reach out and keep grabbing the shoulder of my dinner date in order to stay focused on him. I just felt like if I couldn't put two senses together, I couldn't keep track of what was happening. I needed to either be listening and seeing him or listening and touching him. He was like, you're being really handsy. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not, this, I'm not, this is me just trying to stay anchored in reality. <laughs> when the main course came, it was A, very difficult to actually get anything on my fork. 
and B, very difficult to judge where my mouth was. I actually kind of had to use my mouth like fingers and find my fork and gently touch the food to figure out, was it too hot? What was the shape of it? Was there too much on the fork? And then eating it was always a fascinating surprise because you were like, oh, okay, so there's peanut sauce. Oh, wow, there's what tastes like squash, maybe, which it turns out was eggplant, apparently. Oh, and there's like this stringy stuff, which it turned out was zucchini. The food was actually really good. It wasn't like you're in a super fine dining restaurant experience, but it was definitely good food, and it was much better than what my brain had constructed in the darkness that the restaurant would be. Our waiter, Bobby, was extremely good at guiding us as well. He would, he would like grab our hands and push them towards our drink or our, our plates. And whenever he came by, he would like touch one of us so that we knew he was talking to us and not the people beside us. And eventually I was able to kind of just like relax into it and the food, the, the habitual nature of eating, brought me back to a kind of comfortable place where I was able to enjoy the evening. But it was a challenge. It was definitely not like, oh, that was a delightful, pleasant experience. It was like, that was trying. That was dizzying, disorienting. And I actually, I had to work to, to enjoy it and to find my bearings and to try to make the most out of it. So I don't know that eating in the dark would be for everyone, though I think it's a fascinating thing to try because it really shows how your body uses different senses to construct a kind of reality and to construct a kind of focus. And it also, to me at least, revealed all kinds of subtle judgments that I make without thinking about it, about places that I enter in terms of what they look like and also, when I don't have that information, how I immediately go negative. I immediately get on the defensive, and I immediately get my back up, and I'm like, why would I trust this situation? The next time I go into something like this, I think I would have to take some time in advance to say, I'm going to do something new. It's probably going to be disorienting. I'm going to try to go in with a sense of trust to see if I can make the most of it. And then eventually, you get led to a small room with a little bit of light where you pay, of course. And then Bobby comes back and leads you to the exit. And when you come outside onto the street, it is so surreal. Once again, it feels like you've taken a break from regular life. And when reality hits you again, everything is novel and unique and also kind of reassuring and you suddenly look at your dinner date and you're like, oh, right, that's what you look like. I had an image constructed of you in my mind, but it wasn't quite accurate. Like, this is what you really look like. And you actually just end up hanging out outside the restaurant, going over what a weird experience it was and how it feels to be back in reality and what you would do if you went again. I mean, I would love to go back with a larger group and see what happens. I also didn't drink any alcohol because I was worried that that would just like fuck me up even more. But I think it would be interesting to go back and have like one or two drinks. That would probably really change the experience. Maybe not for the better, I might add. But overall, it really felt like a cool thing to try. 
So if you're in Vancouver, you can check this restaurant out. It's called The Dark Table. And I would love to hear, if you try it out, what you think. I think the common thread with all of these sensory deprivation experiences was that it altered the way I interacted with reality after the fact. You know, I had varying degrees of pleasant experiences within the actual sensory deprivation. But what's so fascinating is that they all renewed the way that I enjoyed my actual life. Now, when I eat a meal with lights on, I really am more grateful for my sight after having come out of that restaurant. So going into something that deprives your senses might not be the best experience, but it might have a positive effect after the fact.